And so Psalm 2, Psalm 2, as I already alluded to in our prayer, I would imagine this is true for each of us, that in this last year, last few months, maybe even in this last week, likely even in this last week, you've probably thought something along the lines of, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with our government? Why do the nations rage? And if you're anything like me, you know that you can be tempted to think that this is a new problem. We've heard the language that, you know, this season is unprecedented. And how do we respond to these questions that we have about the world? I know my instinct, too, is to feel despair, to feel weary, to feel angry. Maybe all of the above when we come face-to-face with these questions. But this impulse to think that this is a new phenomenon we quickly find out is wrong. Ever since the first few pages of the Bible, the whole history of humanity, we discover that this is not new. This is not new. It's sinful nature nature that resists and even fights the idea of submitting to an all-powerful God, to a king. And this impulse to respond with despair and anger is misguided too. Now hear me. It is, there are things in life that will rightly make us sad and angry. But when we start to disconnect, disconnect that despair and anger, as we, I fear we so often do from the fact that we worship a sovereign God who is our king, we run the risk of falling into that same snare, not submitting to our all-powerful God. Instead, we we try to take things into our own hands. And so these aren't new topics, but that doesn't mean that they're easy to navigate. Therefore, God has graciously given us passages like Psalm 2. As we looked at in Psalm 1, we are to delight in his instruction, delight in his word. And so as we approach Psalm 2, we want to delight in the truths that he gives us through his word. And that will help us as we consider how to respond And so this morning, our big idea, you won't see it on the screen, kind of leaning back the slides here, but if you have a bulletin, you'll you'll be able to see the points through the sermon. But our big idea is this. You should be able to write it down, all right, if you want to. When we come face-to-face, this isn't the big idea yet. When we come face-to-face with an upside-down society and upside-down hearts, our big idea is this. Jesus is king. Stop fighting and take refuge in him. Jesus is king. Stop fighting and take refuge in him. I'll say it one more time. Jesus is king. Stop fighting and take refuge in him. If you think about each part of that statement, that is, it really is a bold statement. But it is an important statement for all of us to consider as we approach Psalm 2 this morning. Jesus is king. Stop fighting. Take refuge in him. So I don't know if this is going to be helpful for you, but I stumbled upon videos of chameleons this week, and they're interesting creatures. <laughs> you know their eyes, how they like, they're always all over the place? Uh, I was watching a video, and they were showing that there was two bugs flying, and the chameleon was following both of them independently with their eyes. And there was these studies of how does the chameleon's brain work? Because I think we've learned, I don't know if you, we think as humans we can multitask, but we really can't. We're just quickly bouncing between different things. But the chameleon can somehow follow 
two different things. They can look in two completely different directions, one forward, one back, one side, one side. And so this morning, as we approach Psalm 2, I want us to go through a little exercise and put on our chameleon eyes, okay? Maybe this is really unhelpful, but it's helpful for me. As a chameleon's eyes work independently, one can look forward, one can look backward. We want to read this passage and really much of the Old Testament through the same way, with one eye looking forward, one eye looking backward. And so we focus one eye on the immediate context. What does the passage say? How would this have been understood by the original audience? But also, we want to have our other chameleon eye looking. Where is this passage pointing? How do we find fulfillment in what we know? How do we find fulfillment in Jesus? Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament, which is helpful for us. The Bible does the heavy lifting. It interprets itself for us. And we can see from the way the early church and even Jesus himself read psalms like this. And so we'll reference it a few times, but we'll put on our chameleon eyes, okay? One eye looking one way, one eye looking another. And as we approach Psalm 2, I kind of alluded to this last week, those that were with us, is that Psalm 1 and 2 collectively are often referred to as the gateway to the book of Psalms. It's like when you approach a building and there's two pillars. On one side is Psalm 1, on the other is Psalm 2. And it's through these two Psalms that we approach the whole book. Psalm 1 speaks, uh, as we considered, on the individual level. Psalm 2 takes us to the national level. And so if we read them in sequence, we'll see a helpful picture that gets painted for us. In Psalm 1, just to review, or if you missed it, contrasts two different type of peop- types of people, two ways to live, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the way of the blessed man who is anchored deep, planted by streams of water, and the way of the wicked man who wasn't anchored in anything, wasn't rooted, wasn't fruitful. He was like chaff that was just blown away In the wind. And we saw that the way of the righteous could be deeply known by God, but the way of the wicked couldn't even stand, was brought to its knees in the judgment. We saw in the very last verse, the one right before Psalm 2, that the way of the wicked will perish. And so it's through that lens that we now turn our eyes to Psalm 2. We look to the second pillar where the way of the wicked is seen as foolishness on a national scale. And this leads us to our first point this morning. Our first point is a bad idea. A bad idea. As we considered, there's two ways to live, the wise and the foolish, the anchored and the blown away. So verse 1 to 3 of Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The contrast of the righteous and the wicked we see doesn't end in Psalm 1. We see it continue on. It crosses over. And it's interesting to look at the parallels and the contrast between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The same Hebrew word that we find in Psalm 1, uh, that we looked at uh, on meditates uh, in Psalm 1, 2, 
It says, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word for meditates is the same Hebrew word we see in verse 1 of Psalm 2 for plot. Same word, but very different meaning. Right? One is meditating or stewing on God's word. The other is stewing against God, plotting against him. And this isn't ignorance. This isn't a sin of omission. This is blatant. We see in verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves against God, against Yahweh. If we haven't already landed after studying Psalm 1 on the conclusion that, that this is a bad idea, we are sure of it in Psalm 2 that this is a bad idea to stand against God. When I was a kid, my dad would take my sister and I Father's Day camping. Every Father's Day, we would go camping. And I have this a very clear memory of one year. It was just an absolute downpour. Now, when it's raining a lot, camping's okay if you're in a waterproof tent. And so, that, good news, we had a waterproof tent. Things were great. But I remember just one site over, there was a group of guys there, and their whole goal was to go camping, I guess on Father's Day weekend, and just party. That was their entire prerogative. And the rain was putting a bit of damper on their partying. And so uh, one of them, I clearly remember, he was not in the most clear-thinking uh, state, uh, inebriated, so to speak. But he would go out and he would yell. And he would yell and he would say, Bring it on! As the rain came pouring down. He was challenging God. Is this the best you've got? Now, no matter your view of God here this morning, you need to agree that this is a useless, vain effort. And as a family, we would often join, uh, joke. The, the rain would start coming, and we'd all yell, bring it on! Like, just understanding how pathetic of an effort that was. How could you stand against God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who brings the rain? And so just like this fool, really, yelling, bring it on to God, we see that these kings, these peoples, these nations rage against God, and it's blatant, but it's vain, and it's simply a bad idea. And so what are they doing? It says they, they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, who are we talking about here? Well, this is where we need our chameleon eyes. Because the kings of Israel... Uh, the time of, uh, when we understand how this psalm would be read in its immediate context, were anointed in their coronation. Now in the royal family now, uh, they, there's a big kind of commotion for their coronation, and it would have certainly looked different back then in biblical times, but there was still this coronation. And the kings of Israel were anointed, setting them apart as king, whose job it was to lead and rule and embody God's covenant faithfulness. And so, it was known that to rebel against the king was to rebel against the God who appointed him. And this is what we see here, that the nations are raging, the earthly kings are raging against Yahweh and against his anointed, against his appointed king. And we see this narrative play out time and time again. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, Nations go against God's chosen people, God's chosen king, and therefore God himself. 
And so that is our one chameleon eye looking backward. And our other chameleon eye uh, looking forward, we can tell this is more than an account simply against uh, or uh, a rage against King David. The word anointed, uh, transliterated, is how we get to the word Messiah. And the word for anointed, translated into Greek, is the word Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. God's anointed one. God's chosen one. And so with our other chameleon eye, we look forward. We start to see a much bigger picture of this psalm. A much bigger picture of this psalm. Yes, this is about the nations raging against God's anointed king and his line. But we start to look through the lens of King David's ultimate heir, King Jesus. We start to see a much larger, a much more heightened significance of where this psalm goes. It goes beyond national rule and reign. And we'll see this expanded more fully in a few verses, but let's keep going. And so the nations, the peoples, the kings, they set themselves against God and against his anointed. And they say, verse 3, kind of a, a funny verse, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What's going on here? Well, this likely sounds familiar to many of us. Let us throw off these bonds. It's a burden I don't want to bear. Let us get rid of these chains. So this sounds familiar at a national level. Setting uh, a nation, setting themselves against God. But let's not only look at the, the macro. Let's consider the micro. Look at your own heart. Does this sound familiar to you? Whether you are a Christian or not this morning, you, you have to know that this must sound familiar. I don't want to be held down. I would consider Christianity, but it's just about following the rules, about these bonds, about these chains. Believing in something like this interferes with me living my truth. Do you hear how vain this sounds as we consider it like these kings setting themselves against Yahweh and his anointed like the fool in the rain yelling, bring it on. It's like saying, oh, my seatbelt, you know, it's uncomfortable. It rubs against my neck. So I'm not going to wear it. How foolish is that? Oh, my bike helmet doesn't look cool. I was that kid. I'm not going to wear it. But how foolish is that? That's, a, that's what it's there for, to protect you. Let's cast off this burden. Those things are there to save you. But this is the picture that gets painted. Rather than what we saw in Psalm 1, meditating and delighting in God's instruction, we quickly say that that's a burden that we don't want to bear. Chains that we need to cast off. To use the illustration that the psalmist uses in Psalm 1, it's like that dried out plant saying, I don't need water. It'll only quench my awesomeness. How dumb is that? The tree planted by streams of water knows that it's the stream that's keeping it alive. It's in that stream that the tree finds sustenance. And so this morning, I want to ask you a question. What are those cords and bonds that you are trying to cast off yourself this morning? This is the paradox of the gospel. 
that by counting the cost and following Christ, it will cost you everything, but you will gain more. Because whether we acknowledge it or not, these bonds, these cords, these chains that we talk about, they are not the only types of bondage. By rejecting God, we are slaves to sin. And simply put, this is a bad idea. To carry the weight of rebellion is futile. It's like challenging the rain. Bring it on. And Christian, we are not exempt from this. Reflect on the places in your life where you rage and plot in vain, where you say, let me cast off these cords and bonds. What is that sin in your life that you refuse to kill? What is that place in your life where you so easily, maybe even daily, justify anger, slander, gossip, lust? Spot that futile denial that you are doing the same thing, trying to cast off that cord, trying to cast off that bond. You're trying to unclip the seatbelt that's there to save your life. And so Christian or not, this is what we talk about when we talk about sin, rebellion. This is the biggest problem that humanity faces. And so from the smallest scale of your own heart to the national level, we are in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. We have turned each to our own way. And we see this in our own hearts. We see it everywhere we look. We see injustice. We see evil. We see hurt. We see rebellion. And so how do we respond when the nations rage? Despair? Anger? Well, we see the early church actually take Psalm 2 and apply this very passage as they consider the nations raging and the people's plotting in vain. Acts chapter 4, 23 through 28 says this. Uh, they were just imprisoned uh, and, and put before a council, Peter and John. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your uh, of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together, they, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now there's a lot going on there, but we can get a really good view into how to apply this passage. The nations will rage. Right? These guys have been arrested, threatened. They proclaim Christ, who himself was arrested, threatened, Think of the mistreatment by Herod, Pontius Pilate, by the Gentiles, and by the Jews. He was killed as an enemy of the state. The nations were raging. But 
they praise God that he is sovereign over all. The greatest injustice in the world, the arrest, trial, and murder of Jesus, God predestined for his purposes. And so, yes, the nations do rage. The peoples plot in vain. The kings set themselves against God and his anointed, against Christ. Yet they praise God. They're not driven to despair. And so we can agree that this setting themselves against God and his anointed is a bad idea. But is it a threat? No. God is much bigger than that. And that's what we see in Psalm 2. Our first point, a bad idea. Our second point, a bigger God. A bad idea, a bigger God. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And so the scene moves from earth to heaven. And how does God respond to this attempt to burst these bonds? He laughs. God isn't taken off guard. He's not even surprised. And so like the feeble attempt we would make at the beach to try to stop a wave with our own arms, is like a whole nation's attempt to stand against God. So he laughs. Like a child who says, I don't wear, I want to wear a coat. It's not that cold outside. And your father, Smirk, should have told you uh, well, you were about to learn an important lesson that it is, in fact, that cold. That may be a true story about me <laughs> as the child, not the father. I can't even remember what it was that caused me to be so worked up one time, but I remember at some point in my childhood, my mom did something that I determined was a bond or cord that I needed to cast off, I needed to burst. I said, I'm out of here, I'm running away. I'm out of here. My mom, she loves me dearly. But she knew better. She knew that my plans were futile. And so she didn't stop me. Honestly, she probably offered to pack for me. Well, I got as far as my treehouse in my backyard. And as a kid, I remember being out there for hours weighing out the options. In reality, I was probably gone for 10 minutes. But I came back. And I was welcomed back by my mom with a big smile on her face. She could laugh at my useless efforts at rebellion. God's plan is so much bigger. We've seen a bad idea, a bigger God. God's plan is bigger. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Different psalms are divided into different categories or different themes and every scholar you read or or look at has different categories, but Psalm 2 is a royal psalm, or more specifically, even a coronation psalm. Uh, In it, we find specific promises and proclamations for the Lord's anointed, for the Davidic king. This may have been read at the coronation of kings. And so we envision this at the time of these earthly kings, but we can see, too, that this king is greater than David. 
This is a greater king to come. And so the nations rage. God has set his earthly king before them. But as the apostles that we saw rightly apply in Acts chapter 4, God has set his own son to be king beyond geography, but to the ends of the earth. Jesus is king. God's plan for the nation is, the nations, is bigger than any vain effort of human rebellion could ever stand against. And we saw this as we worked through the book of Acts. Not only did the church survive through trial after trial, it exploded. The gospel spread through it all. God's plan is bigger. God is bigger. As much as we want to push against that message, we cannot fight it. God is bigger. And so you can deny the functionality of that seatbelt all you want. Whine about that bike helmet. Don't put on that warm coat. Or try to stop that wave with your bare hands. But we need to collectively give our head a shake as we consider that we are not the kings and queens of the universe. Only Jesus is king. To live our lives in rebellion to that truth is what we considered, and this is too soft of language, but it's a bad idea. We will be crushed under the weight of our sin, unable to sit under the judgment that we saw in Psalm 1. And I fear we too often have too safe of a view of Jesus. Look at the words that are used here. We will be dashed to pieces like a clay pot. And I get that that is, gives you the shivers. Right? That's not a comfortable thought. But I think we often have too safe of a view of Jesus. It reminds me of a famous story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver, and he's talking about Aslan, the lion. And she says, she's obviously nervous about meeting Aslan. So she says, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's our nature to want to be kings and queens of our life. But as we come face to face with, one, a bad idea, two, a bigger God, I want to tell you about our point three, a better way. A better way. And the better way is this. God knows that our plans to run the show are futile. Like the nation of Israel prior to having a king. The last verse of the book of Judges is a dark verse. But Judges 21, 25 says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, when we look around at our world and we look within in our own hearts, doesn't this feel true for us? Now, let me be clear. I know it's not true because there is a king. But because of sin and the lost state of this world, our hearts too quickly say, we want to run the show. We somehow see this state at the end of Judges as our final destination, the goal. We just do what's right in our own eyes. And we hear this from our culture everywhere. I feel like I beat this to death every Sunday morning. But you do you. Live your truth. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. not a good place to be. And so this is what we see. 
as a better way in Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a call to, as we see in verse 10, be wise and be warned, a.k.a. the Bible's way of saying, listen up. Listen up. What do we do? We serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. What now? What? Kiss the sun? This is a call to be wise and be warned, to behold the king, to follow him, to submit to him. Submit is a bad word in our culture. We don't want to submit. Remember, we want to cast off those bonds, those cords. But the call is there. Take refuge in him. Kiss the sun. Like kissing the king's ring or pledge of allegiance. Take refuge in him. We may acknowledge with our mouths that we submit to the king, but do our lives honestly reflect that? Tim Keller, he compares the difference between Jesus being king of your life versus Jesus being a consultant in your life. You know, I'll obey if my life works out the way I want. I'll obey if it feels good. I'll obey if. Jesus is not king of your life if you say that. He's a consultant. He's an accessory. That's no way to treat a king. So what does it mean to submit to him? It means to take refuge. Think about these metaphors that we see in the Bible, that God is our refuge, our our hiding place, our rock, our fortress. The penalty we face is death for our rebellion. But God's plan is bigger. He set forward a king that would stand in our place. Jesus died and rose again to make a way for us to be made right with God. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. By repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus as king, by taking refuge in him, you can find a better way. You can't do enough good works to earn this salvation. It is by grace alone that you can be saved. If the opposite of this bad idea that we saw in the first three verses is submitting to Jesus as king of your life, as Lord of your life. If you are not a Christian, we would love to talk to you more about this. Today could be the day of salvation for you, where you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you are tired of trying to be Lord of your life, when you know that it's futile, know that there is a better way. So we see Psalm 2 end where Psalm 1 begins. A lot of people consider this what they call an inclusio or brackets around these two psalms. The end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. As sinful people, we fight against these cords and bonds that save us. These cords and bonds that we tear off, that's that seatbelt that's there to keep us secure, taking refuge in him. How foolish does that sound? Yet we spend our lives and our days, honestly, if you're anything like me, you know that this is true. You spend your days frantically trying to unclip that seatbelt. And maybe you think you're there. You think that the belt is safely in place. But what does that mean? It means following Jesus. Kiss the Son, submit to him, obey him. And some of us think that we're obeying, but, but we're really not. Jesus says, obey my commands. Yeah, but no. Jesus says, don't lust. Yeah, but no. Jesus says, don't gossip, don't slander. Yeah, but no. Jesus says, love your enemies. Yeah, but you don't understand the way that they've mistreated me. What? Jesus knows mistreatment like you and I never could. Sin is appalling to God in ways that we cannot even fathom. So when he looks at this rebellion, he laughs. He shakes his head. He has set his king before the world. He is a plan that is bigger than us. He is not caught off guard. He is in control. So whether we consider this from a national rage and rebellion or a personal rage and rebellion... We end with the same exhortation we came to in Psalm 1. Delight in Jesus. Look to him. Don't try to burst your bonds or cast off these cords. It is these cords. It is this yoke of Christ's redeeming work that saves. And so don't waste your life throwing off that yoke. Go to Christ, you who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you. Learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly at heart. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. That is our king. Stop fighting and take refuge in him. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help as we are filled with bad ideas. We are sinners desperately in need of a savior. We thank you that you are a bigger God than our bad ideas. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Help us, God, to rest in you, to take refuge in our true king, to stop trying to be the kings and queens of our own life. Help us to see how futile that is. God, help us to kiss the Son. Help us to look to Jesus, to delight in him. And help us now as we approach the table, communion, as we share in the Lord's Supper, that we would reflect on the goodness of the gospel that saves and transforms. Help us to trust you for that better way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.